Greetings in our Lord's birthday name. What Brother John just shared is really touching. You know, you think it could have been any of us. It could be in our congregation. It was someone, someone I don't know personally, but someone we know is like us. And, um, and we could discuss why does God let good things happen, no, bad things happen to good people, and, and all that, but that won't really get us anywhere. We live in a fallen world, and God is sovereign. In his sovereignty, he permits, allows, causes things to happen that we don't understand. Also, really blessed by the by the opening meditation. I thought, um, as a um, as a title that would be a, con- a contrary to the contact communion with God is the, the title "Practical Atheism." When we go through our lives and don't give much of a thought about God, and we just do our lives, we are practical atheists. Acting as if God is not here, not involved, not important. That's me sometimes. So I really appreciate the message this morning. Okay, why don't we just pause also for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you this morning for life, for mercy, for your grace. Our hearts do go out, and we do pray for the Jerry Smoker family, Lord, and pray you would sustain them, and Lord, in the midst of this trial and sorrow, that you would give them rejoicing. Pray also for the for the health and the recovery of their other daughters, Lord, if it's your will, that they would recover. And do pray, Lord, for the congregation there, that it would have a a positive effect that your name would be glorified somehow in the midst of this tragedy. And also here, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased, Lord, to bless us with your grace and mercy. Lord, with your goodwill, with your purpose, Lord, that your people would be drawn to you and to each other. I pray, Lord, that you would be here, that you would do that, and as we open up your word, that you would make it clear to our hearts. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Jude, chapter, uh, not chapter, verse 3 and 4. Jude 3. Beloved. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God." And our Lord Jesus Christ. Three weeks ago, I had the opposite thing happen to me than what happened to Jude here. Jude was planning to write about the common salvation. But out of necessity, he got sidetracked down to an error that he was seeing. Three weeks ago, I had intended to speak on some error, and God directed me to the common salvation. And it was about the grace of God and how grace is abused. Here we have have this verse here in verse 4. Turning the grace of our God in lasciviousness. That means... Taking the grace of God, twisting it, switching it, turning it 
into something that God never intended. That's what Jude was seeing here. And he, um, and the result of that abuse of grace, he, we have this pithy little letter of Jude. And it is quite a letter. It is, um, he calls people filthy dreamers. He uses language and expressions that you hardly ever hear across the pulpit nowadays. But three weeks ago, I did not feel clear to go that direction. Even though I do see in a grand scale the abuse of grace happening. But I thought it is good for us to stop and just study the grace of God. How, how, um, the grace of God is such amazing that it took people like John Newton, which was such a blasphemer, such a wicked person, and he blasphemed, you would think he went way beyond where the grace of God can reach, and yet God's grace brought him back. And then we also talked a little bit about Annie Flint, who was, who did tremendous suffering her life, and yet God's grace sustained her in that suffering. And she wrote such powerful poems like, God has not promised skies always blue. And of course, the one that's my favorite one, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow, grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. And then afterwards, uh, Myron here shared yet that the powerful, active grace of God which acts in our heart and it works out in righteousness. I don't know how you described it, but that's even a part I hadn't mentioned about last week. But God's grace is amazing. But... This morning, I do want to now speak about the abuse of the grace of God. And my title is Crossover Grace Theology. Now, that's a term I came up with to describe it, and you'll understand a little bit later on what I mean by that. To start with, I'm going to start with an extreme position. You know, when you want to win an argument, you set up a straw man first, so you can knock them over easy. Well, I'm not going to do that. What I, the position that I'm going to talk about this morning is actually a very widespread position. But it's extreme enough that I don't know if anybody in here actually believes it. I don't know. I doubt it. But I'm going to start with that to give us a perspective. This position is fairly easy to refute, and yet... It is very common today. It is promoted by some seminaries. It is taught across the pulpits of thousands of churches. And it is printed in numerous books and DVDs and wherever you want to have media. And it's fairly easy to refute. But there is another position that is more moderate. And as such, it is more deceptive. We may swallow this other position because it seems correct when indeed it is riddled with errors and misemphasis. Now, to illustrate these two positions, I will use an automobile as a definition. As a teenager, we had cars. We had Station wagons, we had vans, we had pickup trucks. I think the word coupe was, as a two-door car, was pretty well out of, out of our vocabulary by that time. But there was a new definition coming in around the time I came of age in driving. It was something called a sports utility vehicle. What started as a four-wheel drive vehicle to sort of transport forest rangers to the far end of their territory 
what they did is they added a few more creature comforts to it. They called it not a utility vehicle. Now it became a sports utility and it was known as an SUV. That was just coming into vogue during the time I was coming around. And so then we have the SUV. Then in 1984, another style vehicle was in, introduced that revolutionized family transportation. Anybody want to venture a guess what that was? Minivan. Minivan. And this was a very successful segment of vehicle with tens of millions sold. Then a style vehicle began to emerge that was not a minivan. It was not a station wagon. Neither was it an SUV. It looked a little bit like some of each, but didn't fit any category. What was it? A crossover. (laughs) Yes, amen. A crossover. And a new term was introduced called a crossover. A uh, Wall Street Journal blog article in 2008 said they called crossovers wagons that look like sports utility vehicles but ride like cars. Probably some of you here own one of them. Why is this illustration important? Well, I wanted to demonstrate there is a teaching called a free grace movement. It's actually a movement, and it's named that movement. It's this free grace movement takes what I call an extreme position on grace. And I will describe it this morning. But I doubt whether any of us will be persuaded by that position. It is too far removed from where we've understood the grace of God to be. But then there is another common and a highly promoted teaching that does not fit the free grace movement. Nor does it fit our traditional understanding of grace. It is an attractive, moderate teaching somewhere in the middle. And it is being promoted by equally attractive, moderate, very capable, very I can't think of the word, not endearing, but uh, just really nice personality teachers that promote this kind of teaching. And it definitely has impact in this room. I would dare say it probably does. In fact, it probably has some impact here. I'll let you judge that. This is a teaching I am most concerned about. First, we're going to look at the free grace movement, also known as grace theology. In a nutshell, this thinking is described by the conversation I had with a customer some years ago now, that he described himself as a liberal Lutheran. You might have heard me say this before. He was having a quarrel with his sister and brother-in-law who went to a church that required their members to comply to certain things. One of them, of all things, was the women had to wear dresses. He emphatically stated his beliefs. He said, all you need to do is believe the gospel. All you need to do is believe that Jesus died for your sin and that he rose again. And you are saved, eternally secure. You've got to believe on the finished work on the cross. To require anything more is to destroy the gospel of grace. That's what he said. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's actually exactly what the free grace theology movement teaches. Baptism is not not necessary for salvation. Look at the thief on the cross. Nor is repentance, nor is obedience. All those, to require those, are works that we would add on to salvation that Christ did on the cross. And Paul says clearly in Rome, if anybody requires any works, it's no more grace. To require anything is to fall from grace. Now, I wondered, I never asked any one of them, I often wondered how they would explain a fall from grace if you're un unconditionally or eternally secure. (laughs) But to say you fall from grace 
when you add any works. <laughs> How can you do that? To be fair, many of those teachers actually do care about holiness of life and honoring God by your actions and thoughts. They do not advocate loose living, most of them. However, the unintended consequences of their teaching is a generation of people, several generations now, believe that because of the decision I made some years ago, maybe even as a child, that now I am saved and I am secure. Even though, at the very moment, by, the, by my works, I deny him, but I am eternally secure. Now, how close home is this teaching, actually? It's actually as close home as the local Christian radio station. If you care to listen, it's on there. Uh, it was some years ago, there was a, a, one of the preachers on there was responding to a letter I believe, that a woman had written into him, and he was responding to that, and he asked the preacher a question, something like this. He said, I struggle with assurance of salvation. I'm not sure I'm saved. How can I know that I'm sure I'm saved? How would you answer that question? He said... Something like this. Well, the very fact that you ask the question tells me you are saved. Because if you were not saved, you wouldn't have any concern about your soul. Unsaved people don't care where they go. They are dead in their sins. They just live without a thought of their soul. And the fact that you're asking the question tells me, yes, you are saved and you're secure. So don't worry about it. You're saved. Well, that's Calvinism and grace theory gone amok. Because the preacher knows nothing about this woman and her life. Is she like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus should have said, well, the fact that you asked the question tells me that you are saved. Or maybe he should have said, what you need to do is believe in me. I'm going to do a work on the cross. You believe in me and you are saved. But he didn't do any of those things. Jesus looked at him and Jesus loved him. And what does love do? He put his finger on the idolatrous heart of this young man and said, deal with that, then come and follow me. Receive me as your Lord. Follow me and you will have eternal life. You know, Jesus was not a free grace movement teacher. Rick Hess tells me this. He tells me that in the late 80s, John MacArthur was on a local radio station also, Christian radio station, as a preacher and a teacher. During that time, he began to distinctly and clearly refute the free grace movement. And he taught instead a position that came to be known as Lordship Salvation. He exposed the error of free grace theology. And what happened? He got booted off the station. He was never on again. But this free grace theology teacher is still on there. It must have been a free grace teacher that Steve Stutzman was listening to uh, some years ago. When he said he listened, I don't know where he was listening. Maybe he was listening to a station on the radio. I don't know. He was listening to a preacher, he said. And the preacher was going down the list about the, uh, the talents that was received by the three different servants. And uh, the first one, you know, was rewarded. The second one was rewarded. And, 
And Steve was one. Now, I wonder how this eternal security preacher is going to handle the third one, because the third one is a servant, too. <laughs> he was a servant. So he uh, he said he went down to the end, and he said, well, and then the... Uh, and the third one was put out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there must be weeping and gnashing of teeth in some part of heaven. <laughs> Honestly, seriously said that. And actually, that is a part of their teaching. When they, they teach their rewards are given to those who are faithful. But if you aren't faithful, then your rewards are taken from you. But you'll have, you know, it, they have their way of. Well, none of us. I don't think any of us believe in unconditional eternal security here. None of us believe we can continue living in sin and still be saved. Nor can we accept Jesus as Savior and not as as Lord. These are all abuses of grace that the devil has interwoven in the teaching of many teachers and churches and individuals. And it gives a false assurance. So there are many lost people who think that because they give some mental assent to a belief about Jesus dying on the cross for their sin, they are saved and going to heaven. Because at one time, they asked Jesus in their heart, maybe even as a child, maybe even their parents say they did it, that they believe they're secure in their future in heaven. In the meantime, They are practical atheists. So what is the crossover? The crossover theology varies depending who you listen to it, has varying opinions, depending who's peddling it. But the identifying characteristics of crossover grace theology It's mostly a matter of emphasis. Not outright error, but a matter of misplaced emphasis. Unlike the uh, true grace theology adherents, they do not give the sinner an outright get-out-of-jail-free card. But neither do they call a sinner to a decisive Sold out surrender to Jesus Christ. It's a crossover. It's a moderate in the middle position. Now crossover grace has a very attractive and very inviting message. Because it focuses on the justifying act of the grace of God. But minimizes the need or the reality or the need for sanctification. It focuses on the individual's relationship with God, but minimizes accountability with other Christians. It emphasizes the essentials of the gospel and lays aside the non-essentials, which is about everything except the grace gospel they teach. And in that way, this kind of teaching is generally quite ecumenical. Sanctification, they say, will happen in God's timing. In the meantime, preach grace. Preach grace, which is God's acceptance of you. God's work that he has done for you. God is actually working in your heart. He's doing that now. You can't overemphasize that enough. You can't overemphasize his love for you. You cannot overemphasize his acceptance for you. His acceptance for you is as great as it's ever going to be. In the meantime, God will do the work in your heart. Now, the most telling characteristic of grace or crossover theology is its fear of legalism. They have a fear. It's a fear called legalism. Their definition of legalism is anything that you think you have to do to please God is legalism. That makes it a work. It's something I do rather than trusting the grace of God. 
it doesn't matter much if the thing I'm doing is a sin or not. If you do it because you think you have to so God will be pleased with you, that's legalism. One example of such a promoter, and I'm not going to bring names in here, but I, I, I could. One of such teachers says, I remember as a kid the preacher saying that if you even look at a woman with adultery in your heart, it's a sin. I remember thinking, how in the world am I never going to look at a woman with adultery in my heart? Then he makes this conclusion. That's the weight that comes on the legalist. And it was starting to suffocate me even as a kid. And it suffocates people still. In other words, to put the burden of a holy life on somebody is legalism. And uh, I don't know what he's thinking because it's the Lord Jesus who said that and not and not uh, someone else, not the preacher. And trusting God's grace will do what? Okay, I, I think I lost a train of thought. You need to trust God's grace in people's lives. Basically, it's a hands-off approach. It's your walk with God, and God's grace is in you. He has put his spirit in you, God is going to do the work in you. That's grace. Just trust God's grace to work its way out. But it's a very individualistic. So what does trusting God's grace do? Well, for one thing, you are eternally secure in His grace. They do teach eternal security. So you do not need to worry so much. <clears throat> Second, we are all sinners. And all sins are equal. There's no big sins in God's sight. So, we're all going to be sinners. Next, God will eventually cause you to want to do His will, even in that area. And then you will be changed, and then it won't be legalism, because God did it. Then it's grace. Well, actually, to tell you the truth, that sounds pretty attractive to me. I mean... I can have a walk with God, a trusting, loving relationship, no guilt, no, no need for sorrow, no need for real repentance, because I can trust that whatever God is doing in my heart is right. And I can just rejoice. It's actually a pretty attractive package. In fact, it would end most of our problems at Oasis. We can just be one big family. We can accept the acceptance God has for us. And we can accept each other the way we are and be one big happy family. It's actually pretty attractive. I like that. And then we can go out and we can tell the world about the awesome, majestic, powerful grace of God. You know, there are actually elements of truth in everything I said. And may I actually say, I think we actually need some more emphasis in these areas, in some, some of these areas. But the definition of heresy is truth out of balance. And so what are some of the emphasis that the uh, crossover grace theology has? Number one, I only have two, it's an overemphasis on the acceptance of God. I just wonder, can you actually do that? Can you overemphasize the acceptance of God? Did you ever hear the statement, and I heard it this week, did you ever hear the statement that we need to be as accepting of sinners as Jesus was? Sinners were comfortable around Jesus. The religious folk didn't like him, but the sinners flocked to Jesus. They loved him. You ever heard that? You probably have. Now, that's partly true. 
that is partly true. And Jesus did not exhibit a holier-than-thou attitude. He did not have a holier-than-thou spirit that would drive sinners away like the Pharisees did. We need that. Neither did he judge them on surface or peripheral issues like the religious folks did. But the question is, did the sinners just love to be with Jesus? That's the question. Remember, we're talking about an overemphasis on the acceptance of God. Jesus had a way of occasionally thinning the crowd. And you can turn with me to John 6. John chapter 6. Near the end of the chapter. We could just read a few verses here at the end, but it's it's at the end of a long discourse. If you go back to chapter 6 in verse 2, in verse 2, and it says, And great multitudes followed him, because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were deceived. So there were lots and lots and lots of people following him. And then in verse 60, he says, therefore, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And you can see some hesitancy occurring here. And then in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Jesus, sinners were comfortable coming to Jesus, but Jesus had a way of always bringing them to a point of decision. Either I will have to go all the way with this man because I believe of who he is and what he's saying, or else I'm going to reject him. Jesus had a way of bringing them to a point of decision. And the sinners who rejected him did not enjoy staying around him anymore. And they did not stick around him. They were still sinners. They were still sinners, but they did not like to be with Jesus anymore because there was a point of decision that they had to come to. Talk about the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was so gracious to her. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Then he said, go and sin no more. Now, I don't know. We, have, we don't know anything about the woman. That woman received those gracious, accepting words from the Lord Jesus. Go, I mean, uh, neither do I condemn thee. Those are the words that the sinner, that we all need to hear from the Lord Jesus. We need to hear that. Jesus is accepting. But you can overemphasize the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with this woman, would she go back into her sin? Would she still feel comfortable around Jesus? I doubt it. In fact... This is actually characteristic of our Lord Jesus. In Luke, in Luke 12, there was somebody came from the crowd and told him, I'll just read it. One of the company said to him, Master, speak to my brother, he divided the inheritance to me. And as far as we know, this was not a religious person, just a Jew out of the crowd. One of the people who flocked to Jesus. He said, Lord, help me, I have a need here. And the Lord always meets your need. He will always meet your need, right? Well, well, he will, but maybe not the way we think. And Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Then he said to everyone, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of things that he possesses. So Jesus was not just accepting, and you just come to Jesus and you get what you need. He was not that type of person. He was he actually, maybe I'll get there a little later. 
I'll get there later. In the most complete sermon that he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he stated some extraordinary difficult things. He mentioned two ways which anyone can go on, and he finished with the illustration of the wise man and the foolish man. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will receive, but those who do his will. Here is actually one more statement that came from the grace theology and talking about the acceptance, how Lord Jesus Christ accepts us and how it's overemphasized. It's someone, what is, what is legalism? If you think you have to confess your sin to be forgiven, that's legalism. In other words, if God has already forgiven you 2,000 years ago, on the cross, the work's been done. Why do you need to think you have to confess your sins? That is one of the things that is taught. And I think of First John 1 John 1.9. I know we First John 1 John 1.9 it too easily sometimes. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so number one is we're talking about good things, right things, wrong emphasis. And the first thing we love is a overemphasis on the acceptance of God. And number two is a de-emphasis on following Christ and obeying God. You know, there's a sign that we see occasionally in front of a church. You catch the fish, God cleans them. Jerry Basinger says, the Lord once told me, your job is to catch them and bring them in. It's my job to clean them up. Sounds like a deal to me. I love to fish, but I hate the cleaning part. Tell you what, you do what God called you to do, and he will do his part, and you will both be happy. Happy fishing. That's someone's theology. That's it. Another example is given by one of the grace teachers. He said, we have several people in our church who practice a homosexual lifestyle. If I get up and say, God loves you just where you are and he's going to help you change, will they really get it as quickly as I want them to? In other words, he's, he's debating, should he say something about it? Or shouldn't he? He says then, I think there's a desire in us to control the time and way in which people grow in God. Which means he's concluded not to say that. Because God is going to do that. Grace is like opening a rainbow in the church, letting the people see it, trusting that God is going to use all those colors and all those miracles to work it out his will as he wants. A de-emphasis on following Christ and obeying God. And so that's it. Just focus on the love and grace of God. Play those few high notes. You have a stringed instrument. You have a few high notes. Play those. Don't get the bass. Just play the nice high notes. The bass spoils the picture. God loves you where you are and he's going to help you change. He can do it better than you can. Now just let him alone. Grace means the work is done on the cross. Your sins are laid onto Jesus and his righteousness is now yours. It's done and sealed. Since he did the first part so completely and so well, trust him to do the rest as he wants to. Well, what shall I say to that? Well, number one, that makes all of us parents legalists. Big time. Even our good children don't always want to do what they're supposed to do. Next, it makes any of us legalists. If we approach someone or confront, confront someone even lovingly about sin or error in their lives. 
I have a quote here. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm going to read it. The bane of many Christian homes and churches is the fear of being considered legalistic. Oh. The wording isn't quite correct here, so let me try to reword it. The bane that many Christian home and churches have is the fear of being considered legalistic, which prevents them from working out clear biblical principles into reasonable standards. The results are often disastrous. When fear of legalism leads to cultural adaptation, the present generation is compromised at best. The next generation, having thus been trained, is prepared to adapt itself to future and even more deviant societal norms. In doing so, they are not only compromised, but assimilated by the godless culture. A third generation, if it could be called Christian at all, would be utterly corrupted and unrecognizable as a peculiar people of God. Now, the reason I'm saying this is a hands-off, trusting the grace of God to take care of it is an approach that, de- well, we'll get into a little bit about later, but it denies the work of accountability and building up and exhortation and correction and uh, all the other words that we have in the New Testament that we do to each other. It, it takes that away because you're supposed to trust God. He He did the work on the cross so well, he did it alone. Now he's going to do the rest. What he started, he's going to finish. But he does use people. Trying to think if I want to read something more here. The Great Commission is not just a personal message about a personal savior. It's about making disciples, not converts, to baptize them, to bring them into our community, and to teach them to do everything the Lord has commanded. And for um, another text, you can turn to Titus chapter 2. This is very familiar to many of us, but Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And this is actually about the grace of God. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. And that grace is going to be teaching us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Here we have the balance. I'm going to read actually Titus, the last verse in the uh, Living Translation. This is Paul telling Titus what he must do. He says, you must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Here we have a perfect balance of grace and input. The grace of God is going to teach us what good does it do if you just do what someone else says and it's not in your heart? What good is that? The grace of God is going to teach you. And the grace of God is going to teach you certain things. And we, we read them here. Then, Paul told Titus, Now you make sure that you teach these things. You encourage the believers and you correct when necessary. Don't let anyone disregard what you have to say. And there we see a perfect balance. There is grace teaching every person. And there is authority giving under God to make sure it happens. Talk about accountability groups. But what is really the core of grace theology teaching? Or or theology? I think... 
A.W. Tozer says it better than I ever could. So it's a pretty long article. You probably actually read it. Many of you may have read it. The Old Cross and the New. You might be familiar with it. Back in 1966, I'm amazed what was relevant back then. Let's read it. The Old Cross and the New. He says, All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross in in popular evangelical circles. It is like the Old Cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences are fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life. And from that new philosophy has come an evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, and a new type kind of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but the content is not the same, and its emphasis not as before. The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried the effect, the sentence, it carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal. And, if understood right, it is a source of oceans of clean, good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure. Only now he takes delight in singing courses and watching religious movies instead of singing baldy songs and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment, though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelical evangelistic approach. The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life before a new one can be received. He preaches not contrasts, but similarities. He seeks to key in public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers. Only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. The philosophy behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It is false because it is blind. It completely misses the whole meaning of the cross. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victims. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under death sentence. There is no commutation and no escape. God cannot approve of any of the fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear or beautiful to the eyes of men. God salvages the individual by liquidating him, and then raising him again to newness of life. That evangelism, which draws friendly parallel between the ways of God and the ways of men, is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. 
in coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up to a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The corn of wheat must fall in the ground and die. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations, relations agents or PRs sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It always stands on the far side of the cross. Whoever will possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. What does this mean to the individual, the condemned man who would find life in Christ Jesus? How can this theology be translated into life? Simply, he must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. Having done this, let him gaze with simple trust upon the risen Savior, and from him will come life and rebirth and cleansing and power. The cross that ended the earthly life of Jesus now puts an end to the sinner. And the power that raised Christ from the dead now raises him to a new life along with Christ. To any who may object to this or count it merely a narrow and private view of truth, let me say, God has set his hallmark of approval upon this message from Paul's day to the present. Whether stated in these exact words or not, This has been the content of all preaching that has brought life and power to the world throughout the centuries. The mystics, the reformers, the revivalists have put their emphasis there. And the signs and wonders and mighty operations of the Holy Ghost gave witness to God's approval. Dare we, the heirs to such a legacy of power, tamper with the truth? Dare we, with our stubby pencils, erase the lines of the blueprint? or alter the pattern shown us in the mount. May God forbid. Let us preach the old cross, and we will know the old power. A.W. Tozer, 1966. Now, if that is true, what Tozer says, have you, have I, been affected by crossover grace? That's all I have to say. God bless you.